I started to notice I was no longer in the group of people that like snuck behind the van and made jokes or talked about escaping. I was now in the group that, you know, got there five minutes early and had a notepad in my hand ready to talk in group. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) You know? Um, So it was that four month point where I honestly feel like it was just uh, God, instead of kicking me in the ass, just, I don't know. He just said, it's okay. Come this way. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. Uh, He made it peaceful. So I didn't have to try so hard because I didn't, I don't want to ask anybody for anything. And so he said, okay, fine. You don't have to ask me. I'll just give it to you because I had been praying for willingness to be willing. Um, And I think that day I became willing. That was Andrea Dye. And this is the Share Podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast. And today, we have my amazing and beautiful friend, Andrea Dye, joining us on the show. She is the author of 25 Years, One Lesson. And this beautiful book was dedicated to her parents, which to me is such a beautiful expression of love and an opportunity to make a beautiful amends to the people that we've hurt the most. Andrea's story is truly amazing, and I'm confident you're absolutely going to love it, and you're going to love her. I am honored to call you my friend, Andrea. So without further ado, let's dive into Andrea's story. But first, a quick message from our sponsors. Are you ready to take control of your business, family, and personal life? Are you ready to get clear, get focused, and get results now? Are you ready to boost your confidence through the roof? Well, it's time to level up and add passion, fulfillment, and purpose back into your life right now. My name is Omar Pinto, and I am a certified NLP life coach specializing on enhancing your business, family, and personal life, as well as a certified peer-to-peer recovery specialist who specializes in addiction recovery. Let me show you how to create balance, harmony, and success into your life daily. Go to www.omarpinto.com and schedule a free consultation with me today. Today's episode of the Share Podcast is brought to you by the Share Recovery Community. The Share Recovery Community is our new online recovery resource that offers online recovery meetings as well as peer-to-peer recovery support and coaching that will enhance your journey in recovery. If you find it difficult to make regular meeting attendance in your area or are unable to find the recovery meetings that fit your needs, then the Share Recovery Community is the perfect place for you. And the best part is you can try out the Share Recovery Community for the introductory rate of only $1 in the first month. And after that, it's only $12 a month that once again include live online meetings, peer-to-peer support, and recovery coaching. So for more information about this amazing recovery resource, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. Go to the top of the navigation bar and click on the button that says Share Recovery Community and join the Share Recovery Community for only $1 today. And if you'd like to contribute to the Share Podcast by putting a dollar in the virtual basket, then go to www.thesharepodcast.com, go to the top right corner of the page, and click on the button that says Donate, and drop a dollar in the basket today. 
And if you'd like to access another free resource as powerful or even more powerful than the Share Podcast, then join us in the Share Recovery Network. It is our free private Facebook group that is active 24-7 from people all over the world. If you're seeking recovery, then go to Facebook, go to the search bar, type in S-H-A-I-R, Recovery Network, and join this free recovery resource today. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to show your support for the podcast. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Andrea. Thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, Happy to be here. I am super excited to have you on the show. How are you feeling today? I'm stoked. This has been a long time coming, so I'm ready to get to it. <laughs> All right. So first, guys, I'm going to give you a quick intro. Today, we have Andrea Dye joining us on the Share Podcast. And Andrea is a directionally challenged expat who no longer needs to huff shoe polish to feel alive. Today, she focuses on cultivating the positive impact of living a balanced life. As the creator of Alpha Omega Zen, she collaborates on non-commercial interests with cool folks like me around the world. (laughs) <laughs> She's the author of 25 Years One Lesson, and if you want, you can follow her on Twitter at 25 Years One Lesson. Sound about right, Andrea? Sounds good, yep. Okay, good. All right, so quick backstory, guys, where serendipitous moments happen. So as you guys know, um, well, I'm not even going to go that far into the situation. Uh, Andrea's husband and I had a relationship prior to meeting Andrea. And this is prior to her moving to Costa Rica. Where were you at at the time? Uh, prior to, I was living in the Philippines. Okay. So Andrea's in the Philippines. And I'm having dinner with her husband and another business associate. And great time. He's amazing. We had a really, really great evening. Dinner ends. We all disperse. I get a phone call from the other guy. Right, the the other business partner who, who introduced me to Andrea's husband, and he's like, "Dude, you're not going to believe this." And I said, "What?" I go, "Jeff's wife knows who you are," and I was like, "What do you mean?" She goes, "Yeah, she we were having dinner, and she goes, hey, and if you by chance uh, run into Omar Pinto, you know, tell him I said hello.' It was something like that, right?" Yeah, exactly. Because I had told him over, I don't know when I started listening to the podcast. And I said, Oh, yeah, I like this guy's message. It's really kind of a mix of old school, but like having fun, which is hard to find in recovery. So I find some of the newer people and I don't mean newer, like younger sobriety, I mean, newer uh, voices, we'll say, uh, tend to have, I would say a less 12 step um, message. But also, they're so freaking serious, and they get caught up in the psychobabble media kind of talk. Uh, and yours was just real talk, and it spoke to me immediately. The first time I listened to it, I said, I like this guy. I like his message. I know where his recovery is at because I can tell by the things he says. 
And so I told my husband, I mean, I'm in the Philippines. Meetings there are shit. And sorry, PH. And um, yeah, I said, oh, yeah, there's this guy, Omar, blah, 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 blah. Never thought it would go anywhere. Just offhandedly mentioned it one time. And it turned out, however, a, a year later, he's having dinner with you without even knowing it. Dude, that was the best part of the whole thing. And so for me, it was like, well, we were destined to meet. And so Andrea moves down to Costa Rica and we immediately plan a dinner for his wife. I mean, his, her husband and my wife, we, we, we went out to dinner and then we've been hanging out ever since we've been hanging out ever since we've become really good friends. Um, and that's just the most, I guess, I guess my whole thing was we were meant to meet somehow. I told you this. I said, I go, you know, there's no coincidence here. We were meant to meet. Um, and let's get you on the podcast because I think that that's, that's, that's part of our journey. And so here we are. Done and done. Done and done. All right. So first, Andrea, before we dive into your story, tell us a little bit about what your normal daily routine looks like, including recovery. All right. Uh, my life is pretty tame compared to some people. I think I don't have any kids. I'm not working right now. So I have kind of a lame, uh, easygoing lifestyle. Um, I do a lot of writing. I play tennis. I like to exercise. Most days I get up around 830 probably. I start my day with some warm water with lime squeezed in it. (laughs) Those healthy folks out there know that's a, uh, you don't end up doing stuff like that because you feel good all the time. So I was like, oh, why do I feel like crap every morning? So I started doing what I could do to change that. Um, I sit with coffee for like an hour. I do a bunch of readings. I do some stretching. I try to get my mind right early in the day and just wake up. I'm a night owl. So I tend to uh, wake up pretty late. But that I would say I go to the gym, uh, putz around in the kitchen, maybe lay in the sun for a little bit, maybe chop some vegetables. And then all of a sudden, it's like six o'clock and time for my husband to come home from work. I love it. I love it. So tell us a little bit about how you maintain your recovery routine. Um, I, oh God, it was drilled into me early. I mean, I feel like I got a full brainwashing when I was in long-term treatment and it consisted of wake up in the morning, do your readings, turn your will and your life over, pray to whatever you believe in, um, pray that you find something to believe in. Doesn't matter. Just pretend. Um, and so whatever form, whether it's 30 seconds or one hour, I still do that to this day when I wake up. Um, it's not usually about gratitude, but sometimes it turns into that. Um, I would say the focus of now my spiritual morning routine. Oh, and I just got a singing bowl, which is really cool. I've never been one to, uh, you know, it goes ding. Ah, yes. I love those. Yeah. Yes. So I've meditated for a while and I've just never used any of the extra kind of tools. Um, But I would say that my spiritual routine, however long it takes me to get there, I start with the intention of ending at a peaceful place at one with the universe and myself. And uh, whatever I have to do, if I have to listen to somebody else guide a meditation, I will. If I read one sentence and go, zing, I've got it. Great. You know, whatever that takes. Um, is how I maintain it. Because if I go too far from that, then it's harder to get back to it. And I don't like that. It doesn't feel good. So it sounds like you covered the next question. Because usually I, my next question is, how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with your higher power? Is there anything you want to add to that? 
Or because it sounds like you pretty much covered it there. Um, yeah, I don't think I would add anything to that. I would just say that if I have, I, well, you know what I would add is um, much like chocolate, uh, more is always better. And mm. so the more I read, the better it is. And what I like to do actually, because I can overcomplicate everything, is pick one sentence. If I'm starting a new book or a new daily reading, um, a lot of books that have one reading per day or something like that, I don't even follow the format of what the book gives me. I take one sentence and that sentence, I read it 10 times, 20 times. And that's my sentence for the day. And it might just be, we start our day looking inward. And it's supposed to be that you read more and all of that. But I take it like very simplistically and I focus on the intent of that exact sentence. And then that's what I think about through the day so that anytime I have that to go back to is my thought that started the day and it'll take me back kind of like a memory. I'm sure there's a psychological word for it. I'm sort of biofeedback nonsense. I, I don't know. Um, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Like a magnet that draws me back to the feeling I had when I thought it that morning to just kind of rein myself back in because I like to break down the fence and, you know, buck in the forest a little bit. So <laughs> I need things that keep me. Buck in the forest? You know, if I was a crazy horse or something that, you know. Oh, buck in the, the forest. Yeah, buck in the forest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too old for the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> this is going to go downhill real quick. Oh, we can't yeah. even get through the second question on spiritual condition. <laughs> I couldn't help it. It was like a fucking softball <laughs> lopped right at me. <laughs> oh my god! I am the VIP of assists. You're welcome. Oh, oh that was awesome. <laughs> so what I would call that is an anchor. So you have this oh, anchor. anchor. Okay, oh, so yes. I, I I read this passage. Yes. I use it as my mantra for the day. It anchors me. So whenever yes. I need to connect with that intention, right, I use that phrase. Blah, blah, blah. Yep, okay. yep, exactly. Got it. Love it. Love it. Yep. That's actually beautiful because simple is always better. And to remember one line is not so difficult. If I have to remember a whole paragraph or a Absolutely. whole message, right, it's just all I need is the tagline yep. and I can take that throughout my day. That is, and if it I'm doesn't so work the next day and I read that line again, and I'm like, hmm, wait, did I just do that one? If I can't remember, I do it again. I've done that where I've been on the same page for like three weeks. Keep it simple. Yep. Keep it simple. I love it. All right. So, Andrea, when is your clean date and how much clean time do you have? Uh, my clean date, September 22nd, my dad's birthday of 1991. Um, so 26 years. Oof. Love it. September 22nd. So we're coming up on it. All right, beautiful. And tell us how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs. More importantly, how did they make you feel? Yeah, I God, because I hear you ask people this. I, I'm going to guess I was 12. I couldn't really tell you. Um, alcohol was what I first fell in love with. That whoosh of hot burning holy shit where has this been my whole life is the only way i can describe i mean from the first time it went down my gullet i said yes thank you nothing else existed i didn't care about anything else and it tastes horrible i mean 
I think beer tastes like piss. Wine is disgusting. Like I just, it reminds me of bile. Like I don't want any part of any of that. I want hard liquor and nothing else. And that's all I ever cared about. Go straight to the source. Yep. So anyways, to answer your question, it made me feel like some door to some alternate universe I never knew existed was opened. Man, and I was finally going to be happy. Yes, yes. yes. We all feel that way, or not all of us, but so many of us feel that way. But I love the way you just explained it. Open the door to an alternate universe, right? And I was going to be happy. And yep. ultimately, yep. that's all I want. I just want to be ha- I want to feel comfortable in my own skin. And up until this moment, I haven't been able to do that. And this just allowed yeah. me to do it. Yeah. I didn't believe I wanted to get sober, but when I got into the program and it wasn't even the first treatment place I was in, but, um, and I heard people talk about that feeling of, it was like the automatic connection, like this thing that had been missing from your life was now there. And I went, ah, shit, because I knew they said it. I'd been thinking it, but I'd never said it to anybody. And I couldn't even identify it if that makes sense. But I heard it and I went, oh, well, fuck, I'm one of them. All right, fine. I'm a fucking alcoholic. I get it now, you know? But people, you have a drinking pint. You shouldn't be drinking. Oh, my God. You always black out. Oh, you turn into a horrible person and all of that. And I was like, yeah, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. And then I heard an alcoholic that was in recovery say that. And I went, oh, the gig was up. You know? Oh, like, yeah. You can't hide from that. It's funny how subtle the denial system can be. And all it takes is just the right phrase or the right couple of words and all of a sudden it's like the penny the penny drops exactly it's like oh i'm one of those all right so you're warmed up andrea it's time for me to turn this show over to you it's time for you to share us share with us your story the battle with drugs and alcohol the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom and then finally your journey into recovery up until today so andrea take it away thanks omar um I would say I didn't have a problem until I was like uh, 14, probably, because I couldn't really get a hold of a lot of stuff. Um, I lived in a fairly small town in upstate New York. I was off the beaten path without a lot of neighbors. I had a lot of time to myself in the forest. (laughs) And um, I had a wild imagination and wild amount of dreams and things I wanted to accomplish. And I found that when I drank, I could feel as though I was living those dreams, but didn't actually have to leave, you know, the treehouse or my bedroom. Or I thought, well, shit, what more do I need? This is great. Um, the sad side of that, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, is that it zapped all of my motivation to do anything in actual real life. So any friendships that I had been cultivating, um, were quickly uh, destroyed uh, because I no longer cared what other people wanted in life. I immediately became a toxic combination of a teenager who only wanted alcohol and a teenager who was a teenager, in case you've ever been around a teenager, you know what I mean? (laughs) So I I was um, selfish (laughs) squared. I was devious. I was um, uh, actually working. I had a paper route. And uh, also worked at a local horse stable because I was a avid horse person. So I had a lot of excuses to be 
you know, away on my bicycle. I had a lot of access to, um, at that time, what was enough cash to go and, you know, start buying pots, start experimenting with things. Uh, the reality of my life was that I was a teenage girl who was mature for my age. And there were always people older than me that were willing to uh, buy me things, share their bottles with me, that sort of stuff. And I was crazy. I would do anything. I would go anywhere. I'd sneak out in the middle of the night, any night, anybody invited me somewhere. So I was always happy to go out and party with people and routinely lied to people and told them I was 17. I was 18. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just don't have a driver's license. You know, like any lie I had to, in order to have access to places where there were more drugs and alcohol. Um, I had a pretty kind of standard American suburban upbringing. So no particular problems in my family or reasons that I should have done this. Um, I would say I had very poor coping skills for uh, things that in my life came along that I didn't like. Um, I now call it being dramatic. But at the time, I really do feel ill-equipped to have faced some of the things um, that I don't know how to say it. You know, if if um, I think like most kids, you know, I started having some problems with classmates or teachers or I was quite belligerent. I was quite stubborn. And that actually predated my drinking. Um, the best example I'll give and it only because it does predate my drinking and it really um, is an easy example to show when people say, oh, well, how could you have a problem? You were so young. My problem wasn't just alcohol and it wasn't just drugs. Um, my problem was how I felt about the world and then how I felt after I had alcohol and drugs in my system, um, which is why I'm still in recovery. I still go to meetings. I still talk to people in recovery because it matters to me because I don't want to ever feel like I felt before. Um, but we were in sixth grade, so I was 12 years old, and we were going to some museum for something, and the teacher said, you have to have this permission slip, and, you know, take these home, have your parents sign them. So, asshole Andrea thinks to herself, well, if it's a permission slip and I don't turn it in, therefore, I'm not permitted to go. They can't make me go if I don't have permission to go, then I don't have to go. So, I don't turn in the permission slip. They keep asking me, and I'm, you know, the the same thing I hear from people let's say, uh, reading the big book for the first time or hearing the steps for the first time. And they want to semantically or linguistically just tear apart every single aspect of the program and how they're not, uh, they don't need to follow it. They don't need the advice. This doesn't apply to them. I was already doing that. And I wasn't even a fucking drunk yet, you know, and, um, <laughs> consequences, punishment. I didn't even, it didn't even phase me. Um, I, I literally couldn't have cared less. I made it through junior high school. Well, the follow-up to that story was I just had to sit in the library all day and write a, a book report. Um, so my parents actually supported me in my, um, well, if, if, you know, if it's not required and you need permission, and I feel like there was this little bit of enabling that went on with that because I was so independent and I would stand up for things and they wanted me to be independent and stand up for myself. Um, and that's a recurring theme in my life where if I really took a stand, okay, you're sure you want to run away? You're sure you want to leave home? Okay, well, fine, go for it. Um, 
And once I step out, then I can't really turn back because I'm stubborn, right? So um, little things led to bigger things. Um, I love stealing shit. I thought that was the best thing ever. Um, and I don't want to say too much about that. Um, nothing that could come back and haunt me, but I feel bad for the people that I stole a lot of things from. Um, some of them still live in the same houses I stole from them when I was younger and my family still lives in the same neighborhood. So <laughs> I'm like, hi guys. When I see them now, you know, on family visits, sorry about that. And maybe, you know, I'm sure they never knew that it was me who would have thought I was an innocent little teenage kid, you know? delivering their papers. I mean, what a little dirt bag, but, um, yeah, so I made it through junior high kind of, I would say each year I like lost another friend or two. And by the time I was in ninth grade, I was, you know, getting high daily drinking to oblivion blackout every Friday and Saturday night. I don't know what happened other than at some point I switched from a public school to a private school. And I, honestly don't really recall what happened. Um, I know part of it was some sort of death threat scenario, and I don't even know who threatened who or what happened. And um, I remember there being concern and people were like, oh, Andrea's got these, you know, problems and we're really concerned. And I thought, so I can get out of here. I didn't care about any of it. I wasn't trying to go to a better school. I was, I just wanted to escape the situation I was in because I'd gotten myself in this fucked up situation where basically probably everyone around me was sick of my shit. I would routinely um, drink to the point of blackout, puke on people, piss on people's families, furnitures, like whatever it was, I would get left in parking lots. I would get left at the end of my parents' driveway. I didn't know what I was doing after I started drinking. Um, and I was a complete disaster. So I had no friends left. I got then transferred to a private school and I thought, well, this will be good. Nobody will have any idea um, what I'm up to. And I think I made it like three days. Um, and it was probably one of the worst blackouts I've ever had. Um, and this was one where I ended up in a snowbank with no pants, no shoes. I'm not sure who took me there or how I ended up there. Um, I remember kind of, you know, flashes of what happened that night. And I mean, it wasn't really good. I'll say that. Um, this was my party night to myself for my 16th birthday to give you a, you know, age range on that. Um, I'd somebody show up at my house the next day and apparently bring some items of mine that I had left somewhere the night before there was talk about maybe the police getting involved in something. I, I was so sick. I couldn't tell you what happened. I don't remember probably that entire year of my life. Um, and it was not even six months later. And I decided I couldn't live at home anymore because there were too many rules. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I did whatever the 16, fuck I wanted, yeah. whatever the fuck I wanted. And I couldn't take it anymore. You know, oh. um, after my 16th birthday uh, shenanigans, um, I, I think I went to some sort of outpatient thing after school. I don't really remember that. I remember thinking like, the people that were in there for having gotten DWEs, I thought, oh, what a loser. Like, how do you get caught for something like now I'm sitting next to them? But it doesn't occur to me that we're all in there because we've all been caught. Um, all I know is I'm a kid. They're an adult. And I get to party when it's legal for me to party. And I've just got to get to 21. Like, there was the only thing I thought about. How can I get a job and have enough money to drink and have it be legal? Like every single motivation I had was to get to that point. 
Um, so I saw an ad in the paper. It was for a pizza cook uh, in the Adirondacks at a motel. I paid, I believe, one twenty-five a week, and you got a room above the hotel or the motel. Oh my God! Well, shit! I knew how to make pizza. Believe it or not, I thought oh, this is great. So the guy who used to hook me up at the time, I called him because I knew his brother had a car, and uh, his brother drove me and a parakeet up to this motel. Uh, I, I guess at some point I got in the job. I don't know. Anyways, I end up living in this motel and they knew how old I was. Cause I had to show my driver's license in order to get the job. But everyone else that lived there was like a 20 year old version of me, a 25 year old version of me, a 40 year old version of me and a 60 year old version of me that lived in a tra- trailer behind the motel. Mm. And these were my buddies. And these were the people that understood me. And these were the people where we could sit around. I mean, I just, all I remember at the time was like ACDC was big and is it sabotage? I don't know. Just absolute shit music. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Lots of those like Mexican blankets covering windows. (laughs) And the only thing I cared about was making it through my shift so I could get fucked up. So that I could make it through my shift so that I could get fucked up. Um, And I tried to enroll in school. That didn't work um, because I hadn't really legally left home. There were, I don't know if there was something happened with a social worker and something. And I want to say I made it to school for like three days before they didn't want me there anymore. I, um, I showed up the first day. So this would have been my, what's 11th grade, junior year. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, like moccasins with holes in them. I had like a big mug of coffee, chain smoking Marbreds, like just hanging out in front of high school, you know, like, hi, guys, like I'm ready for school. And they were like, excuse me, dear. Um, where are your parents? You know, like I didn't think rules applied to me. I just do what I want. Um, I was never adverse to school. I liked learning. I liked reading. I thought it was important to get an education. That was like bred into me. Um, so I don't know, I guess I just kind of thought that I should do that. And then that would mean that I was like going to get where I needed to get in life, which was be 21 and have a job and party. Um, I didn't have really any consequences, um, at that point until the inaugural Lollapalooza, which was, uh, 1991. Dude. And I'll just say this. Rock on, most, dude. Yeah. It was the most acid I ever took in my life. Yeah. Uh, I had been given a bunch of money from a bunch of my coworkers and my boss at the time uh, to come home with a bundle of goodies. And I don't know. I woke up in a cardboard box behind a grocery store somewhere off the highway between the concert venue and the motel. And I'm not really sure what happened or how I got there. But those kinds of things happening again and again, um, I just thought it was this sick kind of romantic mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was dangerous. I didn't think anything was going to happen to me. Like, I, I don't know how I was that delusional, but I really didn't see it. Um, I don't know. There was an intervention. <laughs> my parents came. Um, my brother tricked me into he was in the navy at the time he came to pick me up and he said he had gotten leave and he was just 
up to visit me. And um, so this is like, obviously, I guess, September. Um, And all I remember is him driving through the woods and I was fucked up that day. I mean, my brother was no stranger to smoking some weed when he was in college. He was quite a bit older than me. Um, So I thought, oh, great. He's coming to town. Let's get like ripped. And sorry, my husband's Canadian. Did I just say ripped? So um, (laughs) you did. (laughs) I did. So, um, yeah, all I remember is thinking, I can't believe my dad let him drive his car because that was like a no go in the household. And then how does he know where we're going and looking out and seeing all these trees and being very confused and coming to this little building in the middle of the woods somewhere? I mean, we're literally up in the Adirondack fucking mountains. And I look back now and it breaks my heart that these were the lengths my parents had to go to. I don't know how far this is from my house. I think four hours from where my parents live. And they had arranged all of this to come to me to get me out of there because they knew more than I knew. Um, well, the part I left out is that when I came back from Lollapalooza, I didn't have any of the money I was supposed to have, and I didn't have any of the drugs I was supposed to have. And now everybody's really mad at me. Ooh. And when I say really mad at me, I mean, they're like really mad at me. It wasn't an insignificant amount of money. And I was just like, uh, maybe I need to like get my shit and get the fuck out of here like ASAP. It was that kind of situation. And it was no joke within the same like, 48 hours as when my brother showed up. So I didn't care where he wanted to take me. I wanted to go with him because I had just burned every bridge I had. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, oh, that's okay, guys. I'll get your money back. Don't worry about it. Like I was going to come up with something, um, but it was not good. It was not good. And um, I don't even know. I mean, to this day, my parents don't know that. So if they're listening, love you. But um, that, that wasn't good. Anyway, so they had this intervention and everybody read their little letters. And I remember thinking, who's that lady? And then what's that person doing here? Like, I couldn't even tell you what they were trying to get through to me. I couldn't like it it makes me a little sad. But when people are like semi-conscious nodding off in like on the show intervention, like I nothing they said got through to me I heard we can get you out of this situation you're in right now and I said sure sounds good to me and they all left going oh thank goodness Andy's finally gonna get sober and I was like thank goodness Andy's not gonna get sold fucking whatever they might do to me Mm. to get this fucking money back I didn't care um and then I went to some place in New Hampshire for a 30-day in-house and I had taken some stuff with me, so I couldn't tell you exactly my sober date, but I picked my dad's birthday because at the time I thought that would prove to my parents that I was serious, even though that wasn't why I picked it. But or that wasn't uh, I didn't mean to get sober. I ran out of stuff. I snuck in with me and um, they had taken I had this nice little bowl I used to smoke out of. And I thought, well, I'll get that back. That'll be fine. You know, surely they're just hanging on to it for me because that's how it works at rehab. Right. And, um, but I had some other things I had sewn into a jacket because uh, I'd heard that worked in outpatient. They had told me that, um, you know, they're going to go through all your stuff if you ever go somewhere. So sew it into the lining of all your clothes. And I was like, oh, good idea. Thanks, guys. Well, that stuff ran out. 
And uh, I had a susceptible roommate who was actually only 15. And I coerced her into breaking into the cleaning closet for me and getting me some cleaning supplies um, because I love to huff because it's cheap. And if you steal shit, you steal whatever you want. You can get high off almost anything. And I was at that point desperate for anything because it was the first time I'd probably been sober. And I don't know how long, but it was unacceptable to me to go a day and be sober. Um, so I say the last week I was there was maybe the first week I was ever sober. It was an outward bound uh, program where we slept in a hospital at night. And during the day, we camped and hiked and rappelled and canoed. And, and I thought of every way I possibly could to run away. Mm -hmm. I didn't care if they shot me in the back. I didn't care if wolves got me. I was like, holy shit. And the care and kindness of these counselors trying to help the poor teenager who was lost. And I just wanted to spit in their face, tell them they were idiots. Why are you wasting your fucking time? Like, this isn't going to work. You don't understand. I don't give a shit, you know? Um, and I didn't. We at one point actually broke into an air conditioner. I was like, we, we got to be able to get something out of this. I mean, I'm in rehab breaking into an, a window air conditioner in like one of those auxiliary trailers that they set up at a construction site thinking there's got to be a way I can suck Freon out of this and get high. Um, so I knew I wasn't going to stay sober when I left there. And somehow word got out that maybe I wasn't going to stay sober when I left there. So I was asked to go to a long-term treatment center. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and then I realized I didn't have anywhere else to go. So I thought, okay, well, that'll do. <laughs> so my treatment had always been the most convenient or like if it sounds horrible, but like when they take cows to the market or slaughter or whatever it is, and they have those big cow shoots, there's only one way they can go. They close all the other shoots. And that was kind of, I just kept getting corralled from best scenario. Because uh, my next step was no money on my own on the side of the road, you know, and that never worked out for me. So I got flown to Arizona. I remember on the plane trying to convince the stewardess that I was old enough, that my brother was my husband and um, that it was okay if I drank. I'm a 16 trying to convince it. I mean, give me a fucking break. Like I didn't even realize what a loser I was. I thought I was living the life, pulling one over on everybody. Um, and it's actually really sad when I look back on it. But um, so I got to long-term care. Awesome, awesome, amazing program. Um, it isn't around anymore. There's kind of a few that sprung off of it. Um, the change for me was four months in. I had never once offered to share. We had two meetings a day, two groups a day. And you had to work in the morning on like some shift around the ranch, right? So you had from 5.30 a.m. until 9 p.m. at night, two hours of free time. And the rest of the time, it was you are getting sober. You are working a program. You are in a therapy group. You are talking to a sponsor. You are doing something. You are not having a second to think for yourself. Um, could not have asked for a more effective way to stop my brain from trying to control me. Because I, it was the first time I'd ever been inundated with so much stuff I didn't want to do. I had no choice to do, but it was actually like feeding a part of me that I needed. I just didn't even know it ever existed. Um, so anyways, I was like the quiet, judgy one that sat in groups. Um, 
you know, ugh, how sad this lady lost her kids, please. How irresponsible. What kind of maniac can't even contain, you know, like I just judging everybody, judging everything. Um, I got to see a lot of people who wasted more years of their life than I had even lived. Um, drinking, drugging. Some people waste 50 years. There were people there in their 70s who had six months sober. And um, that wore me down. I was four months in when for the first time I raised my hand to share in a meeting. I'll never forget because it was a fire pit meeting. It was outside. And under the stars and this roaring fire, I raised my hand and you could hear this gasp. Like, because why would she want to share? She never talks. She doesn't. I wanted to be invisible. Everything about my entire life up until that point was oblivion and just being somewhere else from where I was. And I don't know what it was. I don't know what I said. But when I finished talking, I felt this weird feeling inside. And it was actually a tiny little bit of peace. And I went, oh, I like that. And then I had this kind of new thing to look forward to, which was maybe these people aren't lying. Maybe there is hope. Maybe I don't need substances. Um, so my four-month mark was when things started to change for me. I'm not going to say I dug in and became a model uh, recovery kid. Um, but I did listen to people and I really think that, um, if I hadn't been in that place, I would have never stayed sober. Um, there were times when, well, I think like anywhere, when you're in treatment, new people come, everybody sizes up the newbie. And there were times when I looked at people coming in as potential vehicles for me to be able to get out. And there were times that people came in and I thought, um, oh, let me welcome them and make sure they're, you know, getting what they need. They don't feel alone. Like there were times when I was starting to feel a little bit selfless. And then there were other times when I just saw what can they do for me? What can they do for me? Um, and I started to, God forbid, see people laugh. I started to see some people that graduated the program come back for like the Sunday night dinner where other people, you know, off the property were allowed to come in. And I want to note, this was a um, inpatient treatment program for 12 months straight. I ended up staying for an extra three months on this kind of, uh, we know you're not ready to be released into the world program. <laughs> um, and I want to say it was called LIP, like no, L-I-T, Leaders in Training, which I think is freaking hilarious because it's literally called Lit. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so but it, it gave me a chance to start to um, like get a paycheck. Uh, I wouldn't say it taught me how to budget money at all, but it was uh, a good transitional period because I thought I was too good for a halfway house. Um, so I could still live there in the same room with the same roommate who was at that time, let's say four months clean, but be a graduate of the program and still have the support network of everything that was there. That was very important for me. At that point, I was 17, um, turning 18. So I was in treatment my sixth, or sorry, my 17th birthday and my 18th birthday. Um, and then like I always do, I saved some money. I bought a car and I was like, I'm getting the hell out of here because I'm a runner. I'm a next best 
I don't like this. Let me get out of this kind of person. The difference was I had dreams back again. I had things I wanted to do with my life back again. All the things that when I was younger, I wanted to be or thought about doing. I was re-motivated and I felt for whatever reason, even though I had at that point, absolutely no more education. I was actually the reverse. I would say I was much less educated at that point. Um, I believed I could do anything. And that was the freedom that that sobriety and the kind of core basic foundational uh, day-to-day coping skills and recovery tools, you would call them, I suppose, gave me hope and this fearless determination that fuck it, if it's in my way and I overcame this to every problem, there is a solution. I must have said it a thousand times when I first got out. So it didn't matter. They were like, well, you can't go to college if you don't have, I was like, to every problem, there's a solution. I don't care. You can't tell me I can't. Um, so nowadays I use my stubbornness to my advantage. Um, I got out of that program, went back to New York, I tried to enroll in college and I got a wake up call that I was still the outsider. I was still the one that didn't fit in anywhere. And the difference was I said, okay, take a breath, ask for help. I had skills to deal with the fact that I couldn't deal with going to school. I wasn't ready. Um, so I dropped out of the semester. I got a regular job and um I mean, I was probably at that point going to like four or five meetings a week. I still needed a lot of support. I had zero friends my age. Um, I went to senior prom sober, even though I hadn't been in school in two years. And I realized I didn't belong with anyone my own age. (laughs) Um, And I would say I spent the next like four or five years just with my head down, doing my own thing, trying to figure out how to get through school. Um how to make money, how to get ahead, how to do what I needed to do to get to the next thing I wanted to do. Um, and the relationship with my family was rocky at that point. I, I don't think my mom trusted me for years. I mean, I had burned a lot of bridges with her. Um, but I would say in a nutshell, um, that was kind of where I was and where I got to. It's a lot to cover from 1991 to now. So I don't know if you want to give me some direction on where you want me to go with it. Well, this is exactly, you were doing perfect because this is exactly, you know, what I want to know. I mean, getting to 26 years, there's a lot, right? But there's, but there's certainly benchmarks, right? Mm -hmm. Throughout your recovery. Like there's the first year and what happened that first year. And then, you know, five years is a big milestone, right? And so what kind of, what kind of things did you start to experience? as those milestones started to approach, as you got to your one year, as you got to your five year, how you got to your 10 years? Because I know that for me, I had like specific events that marked those places in time. What would you say were some of those benchmark moments um, that you can share with us? Because in the beginning, it's like the aha moment happens and I start to embrace the program and I start to go to meetings four or five times a week and I'm getting something. Now what happens next now that I'm rolling? Yep. Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I had finally, I would say by, I think it was 97. So I was about five going on six years clean at that point. Um, started to finally kind of clear out all the 
I, I caught up, let's say, with where other people my age were. Other people my age had um, graduated college. They were having their first job. I got, you know, from community college to a different community college to night classes to summer classes, um, bopping around trying to accumulate credits. Um, and again, I just wanted to play with horses and do my own thing and not really. Um, I just hated being told what to do, you know? So like, you have to get these classes and they have to be. And I, I, there's a, a queen song that's I've got to break free. That's like my yeah. mantra. Mm-hmm. I'm like out of my way. Like I just can't stand feeling trapped. So it was really hard for me to do even more than one semester at the same school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really hard to get a degree. <laughs> so, um, Anyway, I moved to a bunch of different places, but I was always chasing horses. And um, as I got, I'd say, more skilled, I was able to get better jobs. And um, going from steeplechase racing to flat racing was a big jump. Um, And when I was in steeplechase racing in like the Virginia, Maryland, uh, Pennsylvania area, uh, I would say it was the first time I was socially tested in my sobriety. It is the best party sport I have ever seen in my life. Um, I don't know a single other person in steeplechase that's sober. If you're out there, find me on Twitter and say hi, but um, (laughs) holy shit. Great. Like people say, oh, you got to be crazy to do that stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. Everybody's fucked up. Um, And it's awesome. And it's a lot of fun. And the horses are magnificent, athletic, creatures made by God. Um, but at a certain point I didn't like the craziness of it. And I said, okay, flat racing is a regular paycheck. You get paid a lot more money. So I switched over to thoroughbred racing. Um, and I just followed the jobs. Um, so I spent a lot of time in New York. I spent some time in Florida. I spent some time in California. Um, and I don't know that most of your listeners are probably 12 step, but Everywhere I went, there were meetings. Everywhere I went, there was someone who, you know, was happy to give me their number and say, you know, come over on Sunday night. We're having dinner. Um, I was very awkward and I was very uncomfortable. So I would go to a meeting and then I would just say, oh, thank you. Thank you. And leave. And I would lie to people. I mean, I was very comfortable in early sobriety. And I know maybe it sounds crazy to say five years in was early sobriety, but looking back, it was early sobriety for me. So I don't know any different, but um there were times in my early sobriety where I still, let's say, did things that were not legal um, involving um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, products. There, not not ingesting. Um, there were things that um, I did that I would not do now on an integrity level, just uh, in relationships. There were things, so that's what I mean when I say I was tested. Um, being surrounded by people that drank, that got high, that partied like crazy. A lot of people that you know, you a uh, lot of gamblers in horse racing. So oh, yeah. you know, you win big, you hit a big race, have a nice horse, that sort of thing. There influxes of cash, and um, I had to walk away from so many dinners, so many parties that I just ended up honestly, not having any friends at work. I just went, I did my thing. I enjoyed what I did and I go to a meeting. Um, and it turned a lot of people 
thinking I was something I wasn't, you know, like, oh, she thinks she's better than us or, oh, what a bitch she's this. And I just had to tune it out and it didn't matter because my life, my sobriety was more important to me. Um, so I, I hit a nice groove, um, living on Long Island and, um, awesome meetings in garden city, which was where I went for years. And I felt like I was an adult (laughs) finally, and, um, I could pay my bills and I had, you know, uh, car insurance. And I had at this point, cell phones finally were invented. And, um, so I got a cell phone, which was like, oh my gosh, the freedom of it. Um, but the nice thing about that was that I could be at work sometimes 12 hours. If you have a lot of horses running, you're at the racetrack all day long. I could call someone and talk to someone. If I had an argument with a coworker, I have a lot more patience now and I can stop and I don't say mean things to people. That was not the case for at least the first 10 years of my sobriety (laughs) because I felt like the only thing, and I maintain it, the only thing that matters is I did not drink. I did not get high. My behavior sometimes was horrible, but I didn't fucking drink. And so I would lash out at people. I was very... um, aggressive verbally with people. And I know now it was out of insecurity and fear, but at the time I didn't know that I thought I was just being tough and, you know, keeping people from messing with me or whatever. Like it's so ridiculous. Um, so there's no part of me that looks back and says, Oh, I was like this model sobriety girl. I wasn't the only thing I did right was not pick up everything else, you know, there were times I turned away from a higher power. There were times I turned away from 12 step meetings. There were times I, you know, was in places I shouldn't have been. Absolutely. You know, I was a college age kid going to college age parties and then going, Ooh, this is really, really not somewhere I should be right now Mm -hmm. and leaving. And the next week, it's not fair. I want friends. I want to go anyways. And I would go and I would find myself then sitting in meetings. And instead of saying, oh, I went to this party. It was really hard to be around the smells or the sounds or the people or whatever it was. Oh, no, I was just home. I couldn't admit to people in an anonymous program that I was like sitting next to people, you know, doing funnels. And like, I didn't feel comfortable being honest um, about certain things. That was that was I could be honest with my close friends or my sponsor um, or certainly any counselors I had early on. But um to say I just all of a sudden one day, no, I would say five years to start feeling comfortable being social. And part of that was I was so young. I didn't understand. I missed out on all the socialization you get in school. Um, and then the next five years to learn how to be on the other side of a relationship where it was a two-way street. That mm. I would say was the next big benchmark for me because I could be a good friend to someone in the rooms that needed a, help, a hand or an ear or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, but that was like a 20 minute car ride, an hour at a meeting. Ha ha. What a good person I am. But then I couldn't with someone I was dating, uh, be a good person. I couldn't listen to them. I was like, yeah, that's nice. I've, I've got to go now. You know, <laughs> like I didn't have a capacity to hold myself together and be part of a relationship with somebody else. So I would say that five to 10 years in, when I was in my late 20s, um, like 26, 27, was when I finally started seeing there was a bigger world of what 
recovery had given me and I could apply things in more places. Um, and then after that, I was 33, I think, when I had a chronic health condition, you know, knock me on my ass. Um, and that was, I would say, the next phase of my life in recovery was learning how to deal with pain sober, learning how to deal with a whole new type of fear I had never experienced, one of kind of a mortal confused with my own body um, fear. And um, the easiest thing I can say is I it turned me closer to God. So I, I can't um, say it wasn't a good thing. I, I never, ever, 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 ever wish it on anybody. But I was backed into a corner. I feel like I had no choice because I come out swinging no matter what. So I got knocked down and my body was failing me. And I didn't care if all I could do to swing was, you know, flick a grape at it. I was going to do something, you know. Um, but back to the kind of simple mantra, small things to every problem, there is a solution is, okay, this is here. It has not gotten me beat. Every single person that has come before me says this too shall pass. You will get through this. Have faith in God. You will get through this. And um, even, I mean, don't get me wrong. There were dark fucking days. Like I'm human. Um, underneath it all, I had a belief. There was, it was the same belief I had at that fireside meeting at four months where I felt a peace and a serenity that I believe to be kind of the breath of God finally entering my body for the first time that I felt even the whole time I was ill and there would be people that say, Oh, do you think it could be this? Do you think it could be that? Do you think, you know, do you worry about this? And I would say, you know what, underneath it all, I know it's okay. Andrea would get anxious. Andrea would be scared sometimes, but the me that kind of, supersedes Andrea, the whatever thing we all have in us that you can't explain thing, somehow knew it was going to be okay. I would have never believed that if I hadn't been really brainwashed into you wake up, you turn your life. It's not my life. It's not my will. I'm here to do whatever it is that God wants me to do today. And I, I'm not a particularly altruistic person. I'm a very generous person. I'm happy to help people. It is not in my nature to um, kind of stand up and say, hi, how can I help you today? Uh-uh, not my nature. My nature is how can I get what you have? I want it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so all of the program and all of the um, readings and spiritual practice, it's funny. It, I mean, it saved me obviously from drinking or using when maybe I still had urges or cravings or still thought I could get away with it when I was younger, um, in my twenties, but it ultimately really saved me in my thirties because I can see, I know exactly how easy it would have been in dark times when you're sobbing in pain and no one understands and no one can help how easy a pill would be, how easy a drink would be. Oh, wow. Maybe you'll sleep now. But it was never okay for me because I didn't do all of that hard work, literally, spiritually, and emotionally killing myself through treatment, the work I fucking did in that place to ever have to go through it again. I mean, I feel like I cleared it out and I'm never letting it back in. 
You know, I see a spider, I kill it. I want no cobwebs. <laughs> yeah. If there's no spiders, there's no cobwebs. Like I, a very daily um, cleansing ritual kind of thing, you know, fourth and 10th, fourth and 10th. You don't have to do the fourth. If you do the 10th every day, I still do fourth sometimes. You know, I'm human. I don't clean it every day like I'm supposed to. The daily inventory, I don't. Um, but that's the goal. And that's what I strive for. So, yeah, I would say I'm at this phase now where I can't fucking believe it. Um, the sobriety portion of it is bizarre in that if you had told me, um, I would have said, yeah, of course, because I believe I can accomplish anything. But deep down, there would have been a voice that was like, yeah, right. Um, very, very, very early on the Northwest Alano club in Tucson, Arizona is where, um, I got sober going to meetings and there was a woman there who had just gone on a cruise ship and she had been prior to the cruise, 25 years sober. And she came back and told everybody she relapsed. And I went, wait, I'm sorry. Come again. In my head, I sat there. I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This is a woman who I saw, you know, how many times a week, the greatest message ever, 25 years sober, living the fucking dream, happy, smiling friends. Everybody adores her. What do you mean you drank? And she goes, I don't know. This voice came over me and I thought I could drink and it wouldn't, you know, like it wouldn't be like it used to be. And I thought, okay, I have to remember that, <laughs> you know, like, honestly, I kind of put that one in my back pocket. Because I thought, okay, well, I've got to get to 25 years. And then if I have that thought, I have to not do it the way she did it. No joke. That is literally what I thought to myself. It was like a benchmark. So then I made it to 25. And I thought, okay, like it feels silly to count, to be honest. <laughs> At this point, it feels stupid counting. Um, it's my life. You know, it doesn't matter how long it's been. But um yeah. Okay. I'm finally out of air. Okay. All right. So what was the inspiration for the book? Ooh, I had, um, you know, like I said, I sometimes a little tad bit selfish and it was very hard for me to understand what my addiction was like for my parents. My mom tried everything and anything again and again and again. There were many other things that didn't get talked about when I shared just now um, of my mom trying to save me before it was too late. Um, she was pretty convinced I was going to die. Uh, and I look back thinking as a mother, now that I'm in my 40s, I can understand a little bit more what it might be like to look at a child, you know? And, um, mm, yeah, I had a notebook I used to write in. Um, and I don't know if other people do this, but I thought it was important that if I knew I was going to get really messed up, particularly if I was huffing something I'd never tried before that I write a note so that if somebody finds me and I'm dead, They'll know that I didn't try to kill myself. Everything was fine. It was an accident. And so I literally had a notebook that was full of these notes that I had written. And I thought, what kind of person does this to their family? And my mother found my journal. My mother found, do you know what I mean? Like, how do you 
I, I couldn't even imagine. And I had this kind of, I guess you'd call it an emotion, um, <laughs> that <laughs> some sort of feeling. Um, and it, I've never been like shame-based or guilt-based, but I, at this sympathetic, loving compassion for how hard she tried to stop me from killing myself because it seemed the only thing I was trying to do. And yet I didn't see it that way at all because honestly, I was too young. I didn't understand what death was. I just, you know, the closer you could get to the blacking out was the better high is all I knew. And so the closer I could get to that line. Um, so I wanted to somehow commemorate this 25 years anniversary in, um, I guess it was 2017, 16. Um, and I was like, I could buy her a trip to Italy. You know, I buy my dad a car. What can I do? What could I possibly do for them that one, they would even care about two that would be meaningful three, that would be something that would convey the message of gratitude, not just making me, of course, because they created me, but giving them something that gave, I don't know, the depth of what I wanted to give back to them, I could not in any way describe. Um, and I thought of all the things they gave me, the belief that my life was worth something, they loved me no matter what, and this thing that they did where they fostered whatever was going to work for me. Okay, that program didn't work. We'll find you a new one. You know, you need to be somewhere. There's horses. We'll send you to Arizona, this treatment center that has horses. We will do whatever it takes because whatever is in you that is so special that we love so much, we have to figure out a way to make it work. Um, and sh there were times when I was younger, I call my mom and I'm crying like you do. You know, you call somebody desperate for... My mom would talk to me about faith, um, talk to me about all things spiritual when I was struggling and all of a sudden God didn't exist because I didn't get what I wanted. Or she was a, a very open-minded person who pushed me to challenge myself and would never give me an answer. And the thing that I kept not getting was that love is love and they loved me. And it didn't matter because they loved me. Like everything was love again and again and again and again. And everywhere I turned, the solution was love. And the answer was always love. And that I was in charge of my own destiny. And I had the tools to figure it out, to love myself the way they loved me and all that kind of crap. And so when I, I started, it was just going to be a letter and then it started as kind of this little meditation routine with this picture of a bird and thinking about balance. And the thing that they gave me that's unique to them, not just being my parents, was this like philosophical, spiritual um, freedom. And I wanted to give them the rawest, most vulnerable thing mm -hmm. because Andrea doesn't show anybody who she is. So I will show to you the depths of my soul, what I have explored on a spiritual level, that is horrifyingly vulnerable <laughs> to me. <laughs> but it was the only way I could show them, you know what? I'm not faking it. Mm. I am bearing all to you on a platter to say, thank you for letting me be this comfortable in myself that I can think these things. 
um, you know, grow in this way. And they never turned their back on me. And all they ever, ever, ever did was support me and try to push me towards the light. Um, so I wanted to give them a reflection back of what all of that had given me, which was this wonderful place inside where I can understand how to help myself get balanced so I don't have to run around like a chicken with my head cut off in fear all the time. Because ultimately, that's the gift they gave me, you know? Wow. Wow. So that was the inspiration for the book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I asked that question. I mean, <laughs> an how? hour later. <laughs> no, 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 no. And how, listen, trying to convey the gratitude, the gratitude that we have to our sponsors, to the yep. people that are closest to us in the fellowship, to our parents, to our wives, ex-wives, husbands, ex-husbands, to our children. Yeah. Think about the, think about the 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 parents out there that were were not present for 10, sometimes 20 years of their child's existence and not being able to properly convey to them exactly what it is that they feel inside. Because you know, it's one thing to to be in front of someone and say these things. It's an entirely different thing to, to be able to sit down and take time and just kind of process it and give some time and then process it and then write some more, you know, and then go back through all these journals and then really have that awareness. It's 25 years. It's, yeah. it's 25 years. And I didn't, you know, to, to think that, to think that this is the, the, the gift that you give to your parents is, is, the greatest gift that I can even imagine. Um, so what was their reaction when you gave them the book? Well, I wasn't there. I mean, I was living in, I think I was in Manila at the time. So I just FedExed them to arrive on September 22nd or, you know, don't open until. Um, for those that don't know, which is probably every single person listening, but four of you, um, <laughs> it's a meant to be kind of a, you could do it for 90 days, uh, one a day, meditation thoughts and then journal space. Um, and my mom's reaction was, Oh, I read the whole thing twice. I'm like, well, not exactly how you're supposed to approach the book, but that's cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the whole point is that you read the sentence, you think about what it means to you, you kind of ponder it. Um, you imagine the, metaphor of the whole thing is that I'm a bird on a branch. The tree is supporting me. I am a shadow. I am shadowed by the leaves, like everything. Because if Andrea thinks about Andrea, Andrea becomes insane. So if Andrea pretends she's a little bird sitting on a branch, Andrea can be a much more peaceful, loving person. Um, and it was a nice way for me to say things um, that were very personal without it sounding personal because I'm kind of private. I mean, I'm not really big on Facebook or any of that kind of stuff. And so it was a, a way for me to, and I don't really like lots of prose, although I can talk all day. Um, I used to love to write a lot and make things really long and intricate and all these crazy details. And now I just really prefer the soothing simplicity of someone saying like, I love you. I'm like, Oh, isn't that nice? You know, I probably, cause now I'm like an old lady, but <laughs> I also underneath it all really, really, really love just like a chill, like deep breath that 
is relaxing and nice much more than like an excited scream. Like I'm like, no man, like I just want to feel safe and loved and comfortable and like the world is a happy place and not a negative place. So um, anyway, and then my dad's reaction, I believe he teared up a little bit. Uh, yeah, we had like some teary exchanges on the phone after that. He was the one that found a bed for me at my last treatment center. And um, so he told me the story about how that had gone down. Of course, I didn't know anything about it um, at the time and how relieved he was actually going to make me tear up now um, when they did find the bed for me because I had wanted um, for them to not be able to find one. And they knew that, you know, Um, so yeah, no, I would say it was uh, emotional and um, gratifying hmm. was the reaction. Uh, that's it's amazing. It's amazing. So, you know, what's what's really cool above everything above, you know, like everything else. It's that when our listeners are listening to this story right now, right, you're thinking to yourself, oh, my God, five years just to catch up with my, you know, with the people of my same age. So that's, that's the first big thing, right? Cause this is big. 25 years is big. And then the learning lessons that happen throughout 25 years, it doesn't happen overnight, right? It does not happen overnight, but the beautiful experiences that go on and, and the transformative expression of yourself and spirituality and connection and contribution, they just don't happen overnight. Nothing that is worth anything happens overnight. And the foundation that you build, that it just extends and expands. It gets stronger as the time goes, goes on and you learn to rely on it, you know, brick and mortar. You learn to, re- to, to rely on this, this process of recovery. Like you say, you know, I don't even think about it. It's, it's part of who I am today, right? My recovery is just what it is. Like, I can't believe it's been almost 26 years, but now it's like, I can't imagine it being any other way. I think that that's the most important message to take away here is that even though so many of our listeners are very early on, I can attest to it. You know, the first five years, they tell you, you know, you hear this, right? That's, that's after the first five years, you finally get your head out of your ass, right? Yeah. And it's so true that finally it's like, whoa, something really happened here. And it's like superpowers evolve and I can actually use the shit that I just learned after, over the last five years and apply them and, and get so benefit true. from them and then give it back. Like, Absolutely. whoa. Yeah. Yep. But it, it, yep. it, you know, you got to give yourself that chance and that break. So 25 years, one lesson. It's going to be in the show notes, right? Um, Andre, you know what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be doing a book, of, a book of the month. Uh, in the share recovery community. So I think yours would be a great book and you can be the author of that month, right? And we can have all of our listeners, right? Read for the month of whatever. Uh, I've got somebody right now for July. We're going to be doing Anna David and then she's going to be, then it's going to be the first Tuesday. So July, so first Tuesday of August, right? Maybe we could do, we could read 25 years one lesson in August for that would be then September, right? August, September. Yeah. First week. What do you think? I like 
I'm down. I think it sounds great. Yes, I love it. So they get a chance to read it. They get a chance to like do the stuff, do the deal, and then they and then we bring you on and they can ask you questions. I love it. If I have never said no to anybody that wants help getting sober or finding how to trust her inner voice or anything, I am happy to anything you ever ask me to do, I will say yes. And that is something that I learned that has been true. And if it isn't something I want to do, it's even more important I say yes. <laughs> so you'll never know whether I want to or not, but the answer is yes. <laughs> All right. This is phenomenal. All right. Listen. <laughs> You know, it's funny, like we've, we've, we've talked and we've hung out and I've gotten bits and pieces of your story, but it's always so awesome to hear someone's entire journey, right? And really getting to know that person, really getting to understand, you know, that, the what's, what, what's their makeup and what their substance is and, and the adversity that they faced, right? I'm trying to picture this little skinny girl in moccasins with holes in them. 16 years old, smoking a cigarette and drinking coffee, right, in high school. Oh, yeah. I was, I went from like hacky sack circle to tent in the woods to, you know, get high with whoever to the back of a pickup truck to whoever's going to take me to some place in the woods where we can all get drunk around a fire pit. That was the kind of, you know, imagine there's no one else like that, right? It's not a type, is it? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, that it's was me. Ju- it was just it's just so it's like I've been f- I've been pushing against the seams. I have been pushing against society everything. and structure yep. and yep. everything. Right? I am going to do it my way, right? Even if it kills me. I had a kid in uh rehab one day say to me he's like, "Are you ever going to shave your legs?" And I was like, "What? Oh my god. Like I had forgotten people do that." Oh. Like oh. Yeah, I had to have the bottom half of my head shaved when I got to treatment because I had so many gnarly. I had tried to kind of do this dread thing and it got all I don't want to say there was lice in it, but oh. um, yeah, I was a beaut. I, mean, <laughs> I was not getting chased by men. I was not that kind of alcoholic. <laughs> If anything, I had created my own force field to protect me. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, what's funny is I always had deodorant. I liked, you know, stealing stuff like that was great, okay. but um, it's easy. Um, but I routinely forgot that other people saw me because I was usually so fucked up that even when I got sober, I didn't understand like, oh, now people can see me. Because I just had never seen that, you know, like this invisibility cloak took a long time for me to realize that other people could, in fact, see me that whole time, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember the first time I got like a new T-shirt at treatment because I had like hand-me-down clothes. I didn't have really anything. My, I think my dad had given me two T-shirts that were like new. And then my roommates gave me things. Um, I always donate my clothes if I can to halfway houses and women's treatment centers, because even though I come from, I mean, both my parents have professional jobs. We were not a low income family by any stretch. And um, I showed up in treatment with a pair of moccasins, a pair of jean shorts, hairy fucking legs, disgusting, you know, half lice infested dreadlocks. 
and nothing to wear. Like I had a long time before I went to a store and could afford to buy normal clothes like that. I was embarrassed of that more than I was embarrassed of being a drug addict. I mean, that's ridiculous. But I was shameless when it came to my drinking. Shameless if I, you know, pissed in your car seat. But embarrassed that I had to wear a shirt someone gave me because I didn't have any clothes. Like, anyhow, sorry, sidetrack. No, but that's it. It goes to the it goes to why we use in the first place, right? We don't yeah, care. Absolutely. No, we don't care. There's, there's <laughs> no need to worry about what other. Which is kind of almost a beautiful statement in and of itself because, really. There's no need for that. There's no need for me to care about what other people think about me. I don't have to take it to the extreme, right? Know, right? <laughs> where, where I'm not, where, you know, where I'm actually <laughs> to a certain degree repulsive. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was me. okay, <laughs> but but, me? <laughs> but there is that whole idea that when I use and I drink, I don't have to be accepted by anybody but myself. Mm-mm. Right, I can feel at peace with who I am, just just the way I am, every way that I am, and that is that is, that is the one thing that I will say that that drugs and alcohol unlock that doorway. They unlock that doorway for us to see who we truly are, who we really want to be, and who we how we see ourselves, accept ourselves, love ourselves. That's what we were trying. That, yeah, absolutely. That's what it, that's what it does. Then it just goes south fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so I will, it's just a doorway, you know. And then once once we come in, then you know, getting back to that doorway minus the drugs and alcohol is really is, is really the journey. That's the journey of of recovery. Where I I don't I don't need anyone to accept me except for me. I don't need anyone to love me. Except for me. And then from there, I, I come out into the world a different person with love and acceptance for others based on the love and acceptance I have for myself. You know what breaks my heart sometimes when I'll see people sometimes two days, sometimes a week, a month, really, really early and struggling and um, they're uncomfortable in their own skin. And I want to say to them, Hey, I understand. I've been there. You know, I love you. I don't care what you feel like right now. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Um, and they can't hear it. Mm -hmm. And I was that. And I understand where they're at. And yet it still hurts me a little bit that they can't hear it. You know, like that, that's a horrible place to be a horrible, horrible place to be. And when we say it, we fucking mean it because we are you, you know what I mean? Yes, but I couldn't yes. hear it. I couldn't hear it. I still and do it though. Just, say it. I still do yeah, it. Yeah, me too. I do it. I go up and I'm Absolutely. like, you know, once once that's there, you know, and I'll say, I "Love you, brother," and you'll get this like, "Oh man, I, man," like, yeah, it's awkward. You know when people say it, right? Yeah. And, I, yeah, and and then I say, "Well, you know, like they say here, you know, we're gonna love you till you learn to love yourself." Right. That was it's, huge for me. I couldn't cliche. understand yeah. that, but I relied on it. And whether they, there's something inside of them that connects with that, right? So yeah, there's a yeah. part of them that wants to push away and resist, but somewhere inside, right? They need it. They need I it. I think and alcoholics it, it, it goes are somewhere. some of the most sensitive people. Oh, yeah. And we're very loving and we're too loving uh, as much as we might be. We drink too much. We love too much in a lot of ways. So it's like this balancing act of... 
you know, just kind of taming everything that needs to be tamed. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. so dramatic and so many extremes and all of that. And I think the you get your feelings hurt and you love too hard and then it hurts too bad and you just turn it off. So yeah, having that kind of woken back up and soothed, you know, like a beaten animal out of, uh, you know, an underpass, you're like, it's okay to come out. They're snapping and snarling at you, you know, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Come out. And they're stinky. They got like oil and they're missing an ear. Like you know, <laughs> stains all over them. they stink. It's okay. We love you. Come here. That's what I felt like. And people just kept putting up with me. I look back and I think, man, what these people must have thought of me. I cannot imagine. I cannot wait. Actually, next month, I'm going to be in the storage unit that has the photos that I have because thank God, no internet, no cell phone photos were around when I got sober. And so I've got a photo album of some photos from when I was that age. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if I can find anything good because I can't imagine I mean, if that kid came up to me now, I'd be like, where's my wallet? You know? Yeah, absolutely. I love you. Yes, yes. Well, no, I mean, I would, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I do. I do. But I think the message, the most important message, well, there's a bunch of them. But in this particular case, the I love you fact that, right, that 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 whole idea of loving ourselves Right of of showing compassion and love and empathy and care to ourselves is so difficult to 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 take in, but those drugs and alcohol make it easier, right? Like you're, yeah. it's it's easier for you to say I love you, man. You know, you know, you drink it. <laughs> oh yeah, I love you too, man. And then the hug fest happens and all that kind of stuff. And then you're sober and like, no, you know, I didn't say that, right? And and. Deep down inside at our core, that's who we are. We're love. We, we, are, we are an expression of love. We want yep. to love. We want to be love. We want to give love. And, and that's what, that's what, that's what we're, what we're put on here, this earth to do, you know? Um, and that's what we're doing. I love you, Andrea. I love you, Omar. See? That's, a, that's easy. Feels can good. Can you get the little star twinkle? I'm going to see if I can. Get that to to happen <laughs> with the eye, with the eye movies when I edit this, which Perfect. needs no editing. All right, so we're gonna start closing down, Andrea. What do you say? I'm ready. All right, so I'm gonna ask you five questions about your early recovery. You're going to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Is there a timer? No. Oh God. Okay. I was like, ah. Oh. Okay. This is, not a, this is not a lightning round. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Uh, I actually thought my life was under control. So when I heard people say, oh, your life is unmanageable, your life is out of control, I was like, oh, no, no, not me. That doesn't apply. I've got this shit on lockdown. What do, what do I need your help with? Uh, and then second part of that would be I had gotten taken... <sighs> Oh gosh, I think I was 14 when I got taken my first NA meeting. And um, I remember this lady sobbing about having her kids taken away from her. And I was like, well, I don't belong here. What is this shit? I couldn't identify with anybody. It is ultimately what was keeping me from getting sober. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery? When you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time developed the hope that you could recover. Oh, fire pit meeting, four months, mm-hmm. Tucson, Arizona. 
I want to say it was a Thursday night, but it might have been a Sunday. And uh, I want to say it was a combination of I had just enough time that I could see how crazy the people coming in with 10 days really were. Like I was no longer in that first 90 day, like psychotic brain warp shit that you come into treatment with. Um, And we had like no psych meds, none of that. This was like, you came there, you were stone cold sober and um, we had nicotine and caffeine and that was it. So um, I started to notice I was no longer in the group of people that like snuck behind the van and made jokes or talked about escaping. I was now in the group that, you know, got there five minutes early and had a notepad in my hand ready to talk in group. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) You know? Mm. Um, So it was that four month point where I honestly feel like it was just uh, God, instead of kicking me in the ass, just, I don't know. He just said, it's okay. Come this way. And I was like, Oh, that sounds nice. Uh, He made it peaceful. So I didn't have to try so hard because I didn't, I don't want to ask anybody for anything. And so he said, okay, fine. You don't have to ask me. I'll just give it to you because I had been praying for willingness to be willing. Um, and I think that day I became willing. Um, the thing I like most about that aha moment is that at least for the listeners, right? This is a four, that was four months in, four months yeah. in. And I remember mine was about six months in, right? So mm-hmm. right in that, right in that, you know, three to six month range where they tell you that's why, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days kind of a thing. Give yourself a chance. Absolutely. Right? Your body is not clear. Your head's yeah. not clear. You don't know your head from your ass. You're running on fumes mm-hmm. of the old you. The new you doesn't even exist. It's a mm-hmm. pipe dream at that point, but you've got consequences lining up and you've got nowhere to go. Yeah, I think I agree. Yeah. 90 days is just the primer. Yes. But, but the good news is that somewhere in that 90 day to six month period, right? The three to six month period, so mm-hmm. many of the aha moments come. Okay. So many of those aha moments where you're like, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is actually, this is actually working. Like, I maybe no, don't want everybody to know about it, right? Because yeah. I'm still trying to hold on to being cool. Exactly. But this, I feel different. I kind of dig it. You know what I mean? So, so there is, that's where that hope is. Don't, you know, don't give up after a week or a month, you know, give yourself at least six months to, for that, for that awakening to happen. And if you do what we did, it it will probably happen. You know, I can, I can, you know, it's happened to to so many people. I always encourage people to prove all of us wrong. Mm. So if you don't think it's going to happen, that's great. Prove me, prove me wrong. Stay sober a year then and tell me your life doesn't get better, asshole. <laughs> I have oh. never seen somebody it didn't work with. Yeah. You know, I mean, not the no. challenge. I've seen plenty of people not take the challenge. I mean, if you stay sober a year, your life will get better, period. That, so. was, my, that was my deal to me. That was my deal mm-hmm. to me. I'm going to do this thing for a year, right? That was, I don't even know where the fuck that came from. But I just remember going, all right, I'll do this thing for a year and I'll do this step thing. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I'll do it yeah. for I'll do it for a year. And six months in, the light bulb just poof, went off and I went, Oh, dude. Yeah, all uh, you guys that are in this cult, <laughs> you're not sucking me in. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, I was but I'll stick around. Right in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So number three, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? 
forever and always, my book will be The Way to Love by Anthony DeMello. Mm. I know that's been it's the first book that decoded how my brain worked. I was like every single thing I ever read, I could talk my way out of reason my way around loop de loo some mental answer to why I was different or it didn't apply to me. And I read DeMello and I was like, oh, you got me. Okay, so before we go on to the last two questions, tell our listeners how they can reach out to you, how they can find you, the name of your book, where to find that. Go. Okay, so on Twitter, I'm 25 years, one lesson. The 25 is like a two five um, and the one is a one. But you can um, get in touch with Omar and <laughs> yes, you <laughs> can, can tag you and me on Twitter if you want. Um I'm in the share uh, recovery group, although I don't really understand how to use Facebook very much. So I just kind of go on there and I'm like, everybody's typing. Um, <laughs> but if you see me on there, feel free, send me a note. I think you can DM people in the group, right? Yes, if we're all yes. in the same group. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's Andrea Dye, D-Y-E is my last name, like the hair dye. Um, and then I've got a link to uh the book on amazon if you google my name andrea die and amazon the book should come up it's got a bird sitting on the front uh it's not my spirit animal i've been asked that it is not my spirit animal i don't know what that means what is your spirit animal oh i don't have one okay i, I don't know what that is but uh that's some like uh yoga thing i don't know what that is <laughs> i don't know what a spirit animal is. no i think it's uh it might be oh uh, it could just be a uh, an animal. You know, you ever heard of an animal totem? Your mm -hmm. animal totem. Anyway, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. We're 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 off. Could be some indigenous thing. All right. Oh oh okay. Yeah, something like that. Okay, great. Okay, folks. Show notes. Go to Andrea's show notes on the Share Podcast website. Everything will be listed there. Twitter. You know, uh, the link to the book. All that good stuff. All right. Number four. What is the best suggestion you have ever received? Uh, ah, That's a tie. Uh, one is to stop thinking mm -hmm. um, because I always thought I could outthink everything. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's not great. Um, that one for me personally was the best advice, but kind of proactive life advice was ask for help. Mm. Like, you need help, just fucking ask. You don't know what to do, ask somebody. You feel unsure of how to proceed on your own, ask for somebody to help you do it with you. Like, it, it blew my mind that I could ask somebody for help. Like, <laughs> imagine. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. That's, let me tell you something. That's, as simple as it is, absolutely profound. Absolutely. And, in, and, and it's not just recovery teaches us to ask for help, to pick up the thousand pound phone, to make the yep. phone call, to reach out, to have a, a close group of people in your network. But this is this is also part of life. Right. We I go hated on in admitting life. I yeah. needed it. I didn't want anyone to know I was weak yeah. or that they were powerful enough. They could help me. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, Jesus, I talk about like putting my ego in check. I, I really did not like that. Which neither of those statements is true. You're not weak and no one is more powerful. It's not about that. No, it's, no, no. But that's what my like. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. But that's what I'm saying. Was, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. the truth is both of that is bunk. 
right? That's just resistance to growth. Did you like that? It's bunk. <laughs> we want to name our dog bunk, actually. Oh, stop it. <laughs> that's a great Not fucking name. name your dog bunk. Who's that? Oh, that's bunk. Yeah, it rhymes too much with spunk. <laughs> and both sound weird. Okay. If you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? Uh, I would say surround yourself with hope. Um, I think, okay, simple, simple, simple. Mm -hmm. Garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. If I take in garbage, I'm going to live garbage. I take in good, I'm going to live good. So, oh, every time I go to my mom's house, she's saying, nam, 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 nam. oop, sounds like garbage to me. Like, what do you think? How do you think you're going to feel? Garbage in, garbage out. All right. Andrea, that was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Peace. Right? That was really, 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 really uh, insightful to hear what came to my mind. Because I don't think about this <laughs> stuff all the time. <laughs> I was like, oh, the hacky sack circles. Where did all that come from? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know. Those were the days. Those were the days. My poor little moccasins are probably... I don't know, probably a bird's nest at this point somewhere in the Adirondacks. But We would hope so. We would hope so. Recycled. No, I hope anybody anywhere that wants to change their life can is truly what I believe. Anybody anywhere, doesn't matter how far gone you think you are, there's hope. If there's anything I could say to anybody. You know, we've been there, the darkest places inside ourselves, aside from all the bullshit that happens around us when we're drinking, doesn't compare to the pain inside when I was drinking. And that has been healed and like a new person. I mean, I am literally not the same person I was. And that is how we're going to close. Folks, we have not reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica... Pura Vida. Oh, Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.